Good morning, everybody. Uh, it's a little bit bittersweet, but still sweet to celebrate Easter in the midst of a, a season like this. How different all of these circumstances are, the, the isolation and the fears and all of these things, when we remember that Jesus is alive. Now, it's pretty usual for Easter services to select a, a passage um, specifically for Easter, um, but it was a suitable place for us to be to just continue our study in the Gospel of Mark this morning. We've been looking at um, the trial and crucifixion of Jesus, and we are currently in a series that we've called Paradox. Uh, you know, a paradox is something that doesn't make sense because it seems almost contradictory. And what's, what's paradoxical about the gospel, about the good news of Christianity, is the thing that shows us who Jesus is the most is also the most questionable aspect of his life. We've been looking at his identity in terms of uh, the fact that he is God's true prophet, we looked at Jesus as king, and this week we're going to look at Jesus as the Messiah. And Messiah is a word, you know, that carries some credentials even in modern English. In fact, it's gone almost universal and is used for all sorts of things. Of course, a Messiah is an expected or a prophesied savior, a deliverer, a hero, God's conqueror. But as we look at the passage today, that possibility that Jesus is God's true Messiah um, is suspect to those who are present at his crucifixion for many reasons. Um, but as we've seen from week to week, looking at the crucifixion of the Messiah demonstrates his true nature, proves his true identity. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. And it seems especially appropriate um, on this Easter morning. So we're going to pick up in the Gospel of Mark in chapter 15. If you have a Bible, uh, you can turn there and we're going to pick up here and begin reading in verse 22. And as we do, I want you to notice, um, I want you to think about uh, how Jesus is viewed by the onlookers and those who are present in this passage. So again, I'm picking up in Go uh, the Gospel of Mark in chapter 15, verse 22. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they, were, uh, when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe 
those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama skabathani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Let's pray. Father, as we reflect on the crucifixion of Jesus this morning, we pray that your spirit would illuminate this text for us, that it would give us a deeper understanding of who you are, and not just who you are, Lord, but the glory of who you are. I pray, Lord, that as we look at your word, it would serve the purpose that Pastor Nick talked about this morning, that it would illuminate your goodness, that it would illuminate where we fall short, and that it would illuminate your full provision for all we need in Jesus Christ. We ask for your help this morning with this. In Jesus' name, amen. So here Jesus is taken to a place called Golgotha. He's crucified. His garments are divided by the soldiers as part of their spoil for doing the work. And then he's mocked by the onlookers and the religious leaders. And eventually he gets to the place where he cries out, My God, why have you forsaken me? And I just want to point out a couple of things this morning that help us to see Jesus as the Messiah. And the first, I want to just help us to think about how Jesus was the Messiah that nobody wanted. I mean, just consider what happens here um, and listen to the language of those who, uh, who mocked him first and foremost. In verse 29, it says, Those who passed by deriding him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. One of the things that the Messiah was expected to be in the Old Testament was a savior. The one who would come and deliver. The one who would bring freedom. In fact, in the Old Testament, the prophets begin to look forward to a second exodus. A new deliverance. A new freedom. And remember, the exodus is when God, by mighty hand, brought Israel out of slavery in Egypt. And yet the onlookers look at Jesus here uh, and they say, you made all of these great claims. You said you would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. And then they say, save yourself. You see, Jesus here uh, is in their perspective in need of saving. And it's questionable, isn't it? A savior who can't even save himself. In the Old Testament, they were looking for a deliverer, for God's conqueror. And yet here it looks like the only deliverance that happens is when Jesus is delivered over to the authorities. Here, the only conquering that happens is when Jesus is, is conquered by these religious leaders and he is nailed to a cross and crucified. And within just half a day, he will be dead. He doesn't look like the Savior we need. Another place we see this is in the mocking of the religious leaders. And their words are a little bit similar 
but they do draw out a nuance I want to point out. Notice what they say here in verse 31. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. And then notice verse 32, let the Christ, the King of Israel come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Again, they talk about Jesus's inability to save himself, and they call for him to prove he is the Christ. That's the New Testament word for Messiah, to prove that he is the Christ by coming down off the cross. And remember, he is nailed to this piece of wood. He is so weakened from the events of the day that he couldn't even carry his crossbar. And uh, a man named Simon had to be commissioned to help him. And they just say, all right, if you want to show us that you're the Messiah, exercise your power. Demonstrate your strength. And that's another difficult thing here. Here we don't see the Messiah in power Apparently, we don't see the Messiah in strength, but in weakness. In, in weakness, we find Jesus here. But the hardest part of Jesus's identity uh, for those who were expecting the Messiah to swallow is no doubt in his own words. Jesus is on the cross. Uh, he's put there at nine in the morning. He hangs there until noon, and then all of the sky goes dark all across Israel. Uh, And at the ninth hour, which would be three in the afternoon, verse 34, says that Jesus cried out with a loud voice. And he cries out in Aramaic. But what he says, translated for us, is, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the Messiah was to be God's representative, God's man, if you will. He was the one who stood for God and the one who God would stand with. And here is Jesus hanging on a cross just moments before death and he cries out, God, why have you forsaken me? He's forsaken by God. In fact, the Jews believed That anyone who was hung upon a tree, according to the book of Deuteronomy, was cursed by God. And so here's this God-cursed, God-forsaken, criminal, in weakness and in shame, naked and bleeding, dying on a cross. And the truth is, we may not have the same Jewish expectations for the Messiah, But we are wired as human beings to look for a hero. We put it in our movies. We write it into our stories. It's woven into all the world religions. We're looking for someone to save us, to help us. And when we look at Jesus here, and remember, the gospel authors, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all make this happening the focal point of who Jesus is probably no more provocatively than the Gospel of John, where just before all of this goes down, Jesus prays to God and he says, Father, now glorify me. 
And he's talking not about that occasion earlier in the gospel where Jesus is transfigured and changed, transformation uh, before the disciples and they see him in all his glory. He prays that in the Garden of Gethsemane. He prays that on the way to the crucifixion. This, according to the Gospel of John, is the glory of Jesus. It's provocative. The early Christian religion that we find in the New Testament makes this moment, the crucifixion of Jesus, the focal point, not just of Good Friday to be celebrated once a year, but of the meaning and significance of Christianity as a whole. When Paul comes into the city of Corinth, And he begins to pastor in Corinth and he's there uh, for many years. And then he leaves. He writes to the church in Corinth and he summarizes everything he taught them. And he says this, For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah, and him crucified. The cross is at the very center of who Jesus is. And yet when we look at it, And we take that need we have for a hero, for a savior, it's hard to swallow because we find, you know, one who can't even save himself in the audience view, who in the views of the high priest doesn't come down in power and demonstrate, but continues to hang there in weakness. And one who from his own admission is forsaken by God. However, when Jesus opens his mouth and cries out these particular words, it gives us a hint that helps us even here, before the resurrection, before the end of the Gospels, before he comes back and explains to all the disciples, right here, Jesus gives us a hint to understand what's actually going on. And the truth is, although we can see here the Messiah no one wanted, we also see the Messiah that everybody needs. You see, when Jesus cries that out, he is not not merely crying out from his own emotions or his own heart, but he's actually quoting. He's quoting from the Old Testament, particularly, specifically from Psalm 22. And when you take that crying out as a key to interpret what happens here, we get a new lens, a new understanding of what's going on. And so I want to turn to Psalm 22 this morning, and I want to read it for you. And as I read, I want you to remember what we've already read. I want you to remember what happens at the cross of Jesus as he hangs there, as nails are driven between his hands and through his feet, uh, as his clothing is divided, as he's mocked by the onlookers. And I want you to listen to these words written hundreds among hundreds of years before the first century. I just want to read through the first 18 verses. It opens with the same words that Jesus quoted in verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? From the words of my groaning, Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. 
In you they trusted and were not put to shame, but I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make their mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me to trust you at my mother's breast. On you I was cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It's melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircle me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. You see, miraculously here, David, hundreds of years before the crucifixion of Jesus, sees what's going to happen and lays it out. And we see one here who is, who is despised and rejected, who is pierced in his hands and his feet, whose clothing is taken by others and divided up and even cast lots for, who is mocked by onlookers. In fact, there is, uh, there is a, uh, a hard-to-swallow aspect of this. That's why it opens so strongly, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the reason is because here, the one who speaks is righteous. He's one who trusted in God, one who supposedly, according to the onlookers, God delighted in. He's innocent and he's righteous, and yet here he is surrounded and enveloped in evil, and it's as if God has forsaken him. What is going on here? Why does Jesus connect with this psalm? You see, this psalm, because it was written by David, David looking down the promises God had given him to the Messiah, who would be a child of David, a descendant of David. He foresees all of this happening. And when Jesus quotes these things from the cross, he connects us with this. Yes, The Old Testament talks about a Messiah who would come in strength, in glory, who would be crowned with all of the authority, but it also talks about a Messiah who would suffer, a Messiah who would be rejected. We see that here in Psalm 22. We also see it in Isaiah chapter 52 and chapter 53, if you read through that. What happens to Jesus on the cross doesn't make his credentials questionable. It is his credentials. So why doesn't it look like what we expect? Why don't we see Jesus all-powerful, someone who we know can save us? One simple word, substitution. Substitution. Going back to the gospel of Mark, listen again to the words 
Listen again to the words of the chief priests and scribes in verse 31. So all of the, so the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Or the onlookers before him say, effectively, If you really are the Savior, then save yourself. Come down from that cross. But both of them misunderstand. If Jesus is to be the Savior, then he cannot save himself. Again, just that one little word, substitution. You see, Jesus didn't die for his sins, but for ours. Although Jesus here enters into weakness, he does it because we are weak. Although Jesus dies here, he dies in our place, on our behalf. You see, the Bible as a whole proclaims that our greatest need the most destructive thing in your life, the greatest thing you need deliverance from is the separation caused by your sin. And if we just start at the human level, we know how sin does this. What happens is through a little bit of selfishness uh, or through a little bit of uh, self-elevation or these types of things, it begins to grind with the relationships we have with other people. By exalting ourselves, we feel the need to put others down. By selfishness, we take advantage of others, and it strains the relationships. It pulls at them. It it divides us. How much more is that the case with God who is perfect and holy and loving? Another place we can see this is in the reality of death. The reason we are all uh, constrained to our homes right now is because of the reality of death. If the coronavirus was just a sickness that just came with symptoms and was no fun, but didn't end with the possibility of death, we wouldn't take such drastic measures. But we are mortal. And the Bible directly ties our mortality to the reality of our sin. In fact, the weakness we experience as human beings and the fallen nature of the world is all bound up in sin, going all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. And so what Israel needed was not merely a political savior, not merely a powerful king, not merely someone who would do righteousness, but someone who would die on behalf of the unrighteous. See, that's why here at the cross we find the glorifying that Jesus talks about, the evidence that he really is God's chosen Messiah, or to put it more clearly, God's chosen sacrifice. Now the thing is, either Jesus is the Messiah we need, or he's not. But to reject Jesus, whether for the first time, or on the daily as we turn to other things to save us, as we trust in other things to justify us before God and vindicate us before the people, effectively what we are saying is we do not need saving. We say that we're sufficient. We say that we have everything we need. We say that our own lives are good enough for a full and deep and loving relationship with God. We deny that we have done anything wrong that cannot be absolved by our own behavior. 
To reject Jesus is to say that we don't need him. Now, there's another way that this works out as well. And this is uh, in rejecting Jesus. Sometimes we don't trust in ourselves, but we trust in something or someone else. You see, we as human beings are designed to worship. We're fully aware of the fact that we cannot function independently. And so we turn to things to make us sufficient, to make us complete. We turn to others and entrust ourselves to them. And so maybe it's an interpreter of the rules. And we go, all right, I'm just going to follow the rules as you see it. I'll keep everyone. And because I do so, I will be righteous. Or we turn to some sort of big thing, success or wealth or security. And we say, as long as we do these things, life will be okay. Now, I think we've all lived long enough to taste failure, to experience where those things have let us down. But even if you're still chasing a dream and haven't gotten there, you need to understand that always idolatry, which is what we're talking about, taking something and treating it like it is the centerpiece of life, you need to recognize that's always like chasing rainbows. It's always like a horizon and you go, as soon as I get there, life will be good. And when you arrive, you find yourself in the place where you started and there's another horizon along the way. But even if that weren't the case, let me ask you this. If Jesus did this in your place, freely and willingly suffered on your behalf, as Paul says, he took our sins upon himself He that knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. If we were lost and Jesus came to find us and the way that that happened was through this brutal death and bearing the full weight of God's judgment on our behalf, what other savior can compare? What other act of love is so significant, so demonstrative, so all-encompassing? that you would back another candidate and say, this is the one that I trust in. Before you chose Jesus, he died for you. This is why Jesus is the Messiah we all need. And so he may look like on paper, the Messiah no one wanted, but as we pull back, we realize this is the Messiah we need who enters into our weakness and overcomes it who takes our sin upon his shoulders, who was forsaken by God because we had forsaken God to bring us into God's family. But I want to give you one last reflection this morning, which is that Jesus is not only the Messiah we all need, he is God's chosen Messiah. And to see this, we have to not stop here. We have to keep reading. But even when we go back to Psalm 22, this is the case. Remember, the psalm opens with with a crying out of, Why have you forsaken me? Come, deliver me. He says that he's surrounded by his enemies. He's in the very dust of death. They've pierced his hands and feet. And then suddenly, it says in verse 19, But you, O Lord, do not be far off. 
O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. And then listen to this. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild ox. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. There's this reversal in the psalm. And if we take the picture that's laid out in the beginning, literally, it becomes a question of how can it be this deliverance from the very dust of death? It's the same in Isaiah 53. If you read it, it says that he was cut off which in the language of the Hebrews uh, that it's written in there means capital punishment. And yet it goes on to say that, his, uh, that he will be declared in the presence of his generations. Uh, in other words, we go from, from dying to death and then suddenly to life again. We see the same thing in Psalm 22 here. The circumstances are dire, the situation is over, and yet there is still hope. We see the same thing in Mark's gospel. As we'll see next week, Jesus continues to hang on this cross until dead. He's taken down, and with the help of a man named Joseph of Arimathea, he's buried. And because it's leading up to the Jewish Sabbath when no work can be done, he's left in that tomb. But then early Sunday morning, the end of the gospel of Mark tells us that Jesus rose again, that he is alive. Now, why is the resurrection necessary? It's for a couple of reasons, but the one I want to draw your attention to uh, this morning is because the cross is transactional. It's why uh, throughout the New Testament, it says that Christ died for you, that Christ died on our behalf, that Christ died in our place. There's a transaction going on there. In that case, the resurrection functions like the receipt. It's the evidence of purchase. Jesus presents himself as a sacrifice for sins. The resurrection proves that that sacrifice was enough. That as Jesus claims at the end of his dying on the cross, it is finished. And the resurrection says it was finished. It's over. It's sufficient. The resurrection is evidence that the restoration Jesus promised to all people who came to him to be restored to the family of God is true. It's also the mark that shows that Jesus is God's chosen Messiah. In the preaching of the book of Acts, the apostles say that God has chosen one man to judge the living and the dead and has proven that he is this one man by raising him from the dead. And so we see that Jesus is the Messiah because of the end of Psalm 22, because of the end of the Gospel of Mark, and we will see that Jesus is the Messiah at the end of all things. One day, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. One day, Jesus will come, not in weakness, but in power. Not in shame, but in glory. He will come and he will show himself to be all that he is and all the world will see it. And that's good news. Because according to 1 Corinthians 15, the final enemy 
Jesus will conquer will be death itself. That's why one of the Puritans entitled a sermon on the crucifixion, The Death of Death in the Death of Christ. Our greatest need was fulfilled by God's chosen Messiah, Jesus. And that fulfillment was demonstrated in the resurrection. And so, yes, we focus on the cross. It's the center. We remember Jesus Christ and him crucified. But that crucified is past tense. Maybe if you're familiar with the Christian greeting that's often used on Easter, what we say to one another is, he is risen. And the other one responds, he is risen indeed. But have you ever noticed that we say that in the present tense? Not he has risen, but he is risen. It's to remind us of the fact that Jesus died, past tense, and is alive, present tense, and will be alive forevermore. And so the resurrection is not just something that happened, it's something that is still going on. Jesus is alive. And that's the only thing that makes the cross good. Let's pray. Father, we, we have varying degrees of our sense of need, not just between one person and another, Lord, but between one moment and another. But I pray, Lord, that you would expose the reality of our hearts this morning, that the light of your truth and your goodness and your holiness would shine so brightly that our need for a Savior, and not just any Savior, but this Savior, Jesus Christ, would be illuminated once again. But I pray, Lord, that that need would also be shown to be satisfied fully and completely. I pray whatever our fears are, I pray whatever our worries about the future are, I pray whatever our sense of our own sinfulness and guilt is this morning, I pray that we would hear the words of Jesus, it is finished, and the proclamation of the Father that Jesus is alive, raising him from the dead. And that we would recognize, Lord, that Jesus died in our place and took our worries and our fears and our sins and our lack of hope all in himself and took them to the grave and left them there. We thank you for your goodness this morning. We thank you for this annual reminder in Easter of the fact that Jesus is alive. We praise you, Lord, that this was God's good plan to save his people. If you're joining us this morning and you're not a Christian, I would encourage you to consider Jesus in this light, not just as a good teacher or a miracle worker or a compassionate social worker or a rebel who stood up for the oppressed, but as the very Son of God who died in your place for your sins, freely and willingly took the judgment that you deserve. He is the Savior you need. I pray if that's you this morning, that you would just entrust yourself to Jesus, that you would believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Because in believing in him and what he did for you on the cross, you shall be saved. And for all of us who are Christians, we praise you full-heartedly this morning, God, for what you have done on our behalf. We thank you that you died and that you are alive. 
And we pray this in the name of Jesus, the Messiah. Amen. Amen.